Social and ecological transformation requires design and architecture fields to develop new, more expansive ways of thinking and acting that better engage questions of ecology. The DFG HRC-funded research project, enacting Gregory Bateson's ecological aesthetics, examines how the work of anthropologist and cybernetician Gregory Bateson might contribute an alternative frame of action to navigate this challenge. These are recordings of a series of conversations held during the two-year running period of the project. In this conversation, I talk with anthropologist Dr. David Price about the 1940s, a moment when military users of anthropology left Bateson facing an ethical dilemma and influenced his lifelong skepticism of applied science. Bateson's later writings often highlight the problematic relationship between conscious purpose and action. I'm very happy that we were able to get um, Professor David Price to join us. Um, so just to kind of introduce him to those of you who might not know him. So his primary research area is the history of anthropology, along with various interactions between anthropologists and military intelligence agencies. And his 2008 book, Anthropological Intelligence documented American anthropologists' contributions to the Second World War. And he's written a large number of articles on this topic. And he has also written other books um, such as Weaponizing Anthropology, which was published in 2011, Cold War Anthropology, the CIA, the Pentagon, and the Growth of Dual Use Anthropology, published in 2016. Um, so thanks so much, um, David, for joining us today. And I guess the the context of today's con conversation or, uh, is mostly um, this paper that David writes in 1998, and it's titled Gregory Bateson and the OSS, World War II and Bateson's Assessment of Applied Anthropology. And just uh, for those of you who might not um, know about this moment so well, I thought it might be interesting also to share with you a timeline. And this timeline is taken from the Ronnie Donaldson um, dissertation where he writes about the Gregory Bateson archive. And you could see um, the kind of moment that we are going to look at is in the 1920s when Bateson conducts anthropological fieldwork. You would see that um, he starts to, you know, spend time in New Guinea and also Bali. And of course, this is the moment that gives <clears throat> rise to this particular book, Narvan, and uh, some of his ideas on schismogenesis uh, you can find in this, this kind of pre-1940s uh, work. And of course, he meets Margaret Mead in 19, uh, and then marries Margaret Mead in 1936. And then you see in 39, his move to kind of then New York and then the birth of his daughter and he becomes a resident of the US in 1940. And so this is the moment in time uh, I think that we are going to focus on today. But then you also see at that moment, he's on the one hand processing some of the material that he has collected already in Bali, New Guinea. But on the other hand, he's getting more um, socially and politically active um, in contexts like the fight for freedom lobby that was looking at, you know, democracy and promoting democracy in a particular way, 
mean, Fred Turner has written a lot about this, I think also in the democratic surround. Um, and another kind of context where he starts to get uh, really active is the, the Committee for National Morale. And this is not only him, but also Margaret Mead, where they also get research funding uh, to look at the notion of character, you know, national character. So, um, and then the paper that um, uh, David Price has written, which is the kind of OSS moment you see here towards the end where he ends up as a staff planner and regional specialist for Southeast Asia, um, you know, making connections in Ceylon, India, Burma, and China, and Ceylon is where I'm from. So it's also interesting for me to see this connection. Um, so let's start by looking at this moment uh, in American anthropology, David. Can you just like, you know, um, tell us a little bit about what was happening in the 1940s and, you know, what was so special? Sure, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Domini. Let me, in typical academic fashion, um, let me talk about that moment by talking about a moment before. Um, and that's the First World War. And a very important thing that happened uh, in American anthropology with that. So at a different level than the Second World War, in the First World War, there were several engagements of anthropologists uh, in Europe and in the United States uh, in the First World War. One of the more significant ones uh, wasn't exposed in the United States, wasn't exposed until afterwards. So at the end of World War One, Franz Boas, who's you know the the mentor of Margaret Mead, uh, he's very much at the heart of establishing what's going to become American anthropology. Uh, Franz Boas writes this letter to the editor of the Nation, you know, left wing weekly uh, in the United States, that he titles "Anthropologists as Spies," and in this letter. Uh, Boaz denounces four anthropologists without naming them uh, who had been spies, had used their the front of being archaeologists uh, and anthropologists uh, down in the, the Gulf of Mexico. He doesn't really get into details, but they had said they were doing field work and what they were really doing, he doesn't get into the details in, the, in this letter, but what they're really doing is they had uh, shortwave equipment, and they were looking for German U-boats. There was this belief that uh, German troops were going to invade the United States as part of World War One, and all of this stuff. And Boaz very passionately uh, says anthropologists must not use, or scientists, including anthropologists, must not use their disciplines as knowledge to be spies. That this, he uses the term prostitute science if they're doing this. And Boaz writes this very compassionate thing. He says, I knew about this in the war. I didn't want to say anything about it because I didn't want these people to be killed or arrested, but this is wrong. And he doesn't identify the people. And then uh, a few weeks later, uh, Boaz is censured by the American Anthropological Association for doing this attack on these colleagues, even though he didn't, he didn't name them. And this, leaves uh, this, you know, Boas is really the only anthropologist to be censured uh, by the American Anthropological Association ever. Uh, and it was for him, you know, doing this attack on people uh, using their science to do this, using anthropology to do this. 
And of course, Boaz um, becomes the central figure in early 20th century American anthropology. If for no other reason is he has all of these students who go and establish departments uh, across the United States. Um, and in, they work in museums and his, his work um, fighting racism and other things becomes very, very important. So, you know, Margaret Mead, one of Boaz's most famous students, uh, like other of Boaz's students, once the Second World War starts, there's this real hesitancy um, to get involved in the war. And that sets up a lot of, uh, a lot of things for when the, the war starts. And, and Boaz dies um, after the United States has entered the war. And he does make statements saying that, you know, he's, of course, very anti-fascist. Um, he is very anti-Nazi. Uh, and he makes statements saying that this is an all-out war that we have to join and fight. But exactly what that means isn't clear. Um, and there's a, there, there is a detectable hesitancy within the American Anthropological Association uh, at, the, at the meetings after the, uh, the Asian War, the, you know, the Pacific War, and, and the European War has started before the United States enters. There is this hesitancy that's, that's very noticeable uh, because I think of what happened uh, in the previous war, even though Boaz is very anti-fascist, uh, there's still this hesitancy about what does it mean to take anthropology and get, get involved in this, uh, though he does, again, make these really clear sort of statements uh, that are there. So uh, Boaz dies, uh, you know, 1942, uh, but by then, you know, the majority of American anthropologists had joined the war effort in some capacity. Um, and they did everything from, uh, you know, joining the, the, what would become the Office of Strategic Services, which is, of course, the, the organization that the CIA is modeled on uh, very, very directly after, after the war. Uh, but they joined a whole bunch of other organizations that, you know, I'd never heard of until until I started researching this. There was something called the Ethnogeographic Board, which was uh, holed up at the Smithsonian Institution. It was in the basement of the, the castle where they got a dozen anthropologists together on regular meetings. And, uh, you know, commanders, American commanders engaged in warfare in, you know, Papua New Guinea or North Africa or wherever they were, were would write in questions uh, and these people would essentially be human Google, um, you know, working on coming up with answers. And the, the things, the sorts of questions they were asked were things like, you know, um, you know, we're, I'm here fighting in Guadalcanal. Uh, we're being, you know, the mosquitoes are attacking us. What do natives use um, as mosquito repellent or treatments and things like this? Uh, they, they worked on, you know, they came up with language guides. They did all of these sorts of things. And, and of course, the Second World War, uh, you know, here in the States was was a form of total warfare. And you had, um, again, by far the majority of anthropologists engaging, either working for uh, the War Department, the OSS, uh, State Department, uh, Office of War Information. They were even working in uh, the internment camps for Japanese Americans, right? There was a broad range of things that anthro anthropologists uh, were doing. And so um, 
this has a lot to do uh, with sort of thinking about the context of Bateson and Meade, um, both in their different ways, joining this sort of war effort. Um, you know, of course, Bateson uh, being British, there's a whole other dimension that goes with that too. Uh, but I, I have to think, and, and well, and I know from some correspondence that some of this, uh, you know, some of Bateson's approach was certainly influenced uh, by Meade. And I know Meade's influence had this, uh, her hesitancy in some sense, had a lot of influence from, from Boaz, from, uh, you know, from these sorts of things. I think the most significant thing uh, to understand is that, uh, you know, like, like everyone else in Europe and the United States, uh, the war had everyone's attention and it made absolute sense that, uh, that this sort of applied knowledge uh, approach would be what would draw in Bateson, that would draw in me, that would draw in anybody uh, that was involved in, in anthropology. Just to kind of get into that, I think there's also a little bit of, uh, I mean, for an example, I don't have a background in anthropology, and I think some of the others here also do not. So this kind of distinction between what you would call classical anthropology and applied anthropology. So I guess what you were just describing to us now is more of the kind of applied anthropological dimension, and how would you kind of kind of uh, introduce those two because I know for a fact that Bateson started to become really critical of you know so-called applied anthropology and he's kind of also started to talk a little bit about you know the distinction between the classical and the applied right so what what would be that distinction yeah some of the distinctions are artificial simply because um you know in many ways anthropology is the stepchild of colonialism and if anthropologists are uh, doing their field work in some sort of colonial context, whether it's the British Empire or, you know, here in the States uh, with Native American populations, uh, the anthropologists may be interested in, in pursuing theoretical questions about social structure and kinship and all of these sorts of things. But uh, when it's done in this sort of colonial context, there's often some sort of applied uh, notion to it, such as keeping control, uh, which is, you know, in the this this article, um, the the article about Bateson and the OSS, it's it's the thing that I think Bateson um, experiences, right? Being able to use anthropology in this way of uh, of manipulation, for lack of a better term. Um, and he may have actually sort of enjoyed it in, in the way of having success of doing it in this context of warfare. But then after the war, he's he's troubled by it. So, you know, I think in a classical sense, theoretical anthropology, um, you know, thinks about itself as not necessary as not necessarily having these applications. It's studying culture for culture's sake to understand art, uh, to understand uh, how social structure works, all of these sorts of things. But a lot of my work in in looking at engagements between uh, military and intelligence agencies and anthropologists, um, you know, one of the things I consistently find is it may be that we, the theoretical anthropologists, are interested in doing these things, but those who are funding us often have different interests, such as knowing these languages, knowing geography, right? Uh, knowing the geography uh, geography and language, which is something that anthropologists brought to the Second World War, uh, of 
you know, whether it's it's North Africa or, or the Pacific or or Asia uh, or, or or Indonesia, um, it was very very important. Uh, and anthropologists did things like they developed these little language books. Uh, you know, the I don't know if anyone remembers these old Berlitz language guides. They were these little pocket guides that would you know you could go to greece and pull this thing out of your pocket and you know think you're yep. saying yep. you know yep. <laughs> exactly how much is the you know sort of thing those were developed by uh, anthropologist linguist morris swadish in the second world war mm. uh where he you know i've got a pile of these this is the fun thing about zoom is i you know i have these these cool little books, you know, Pocket Guide to China, uh, you know, Russian uh, in there. These are these are from you know Norwegian, and these are these were made in 1942 for yeah U.S. War Department. You know, right here, these were these pocket guides that later became the Berlitz. They have these little fill-in-the-blank things like they used to. And anthropologists dreamed this up. They made them. They did on-ship language training courses as people just spread out all over the world. And anthropologists were ready-made for this stuff. So, you know, please. Yeah, David, I was absolutely um, fascinated to hear David's description of Boaz during the First World War and uh, his... Uh, isolated position um, um, condemning uh, uh, anthropologists participating in um, ways that were not entirely up and up in the war effort, because at the same time, William Bateson, Gregory's father in England during World War I, uh, I remember I, I and Philip and Nora Bateson were a few years ago in the Cambridge University Library, looking through William Bateson's archives. And there were all kinds of letters about um, how William resisted and resented uh, attempts by the Crown, the British government, to enlist scientists in Britain to support the war effort and to use their expertise um, uh, uh, to, to uh, it's not clear what a biologist and a geneticist at that time would have actually contributed to the war effort, but William really, really resented this. And he sort of turned himself into an outlier among British scientists by his protests against this attempt to make applied use of science in war. That That's a great connection. Um, yeah, Boaz, uh, as the United States entered the, the First World War, uh, Boaz, you know, of course, speaking with a very thick German accent uh, and teaching at Columbia University, uh, almost got fired for speaking out. You know, he wrote papers and gave speeches about the dangers of patriotism, you know, saying that what should happen in schools is that children should be taught uh, to love humankind uh, yeah. and, and to not think that their country is the only one and all of these sorts of things, which you, I can't even imagine doing that in, you know, 1914, uh, you know, doing doing this sort of this sort of work. But, yeah, they were 
they were kindred spirits in this in this in this sense. So do you think that, uh, I mean, Boaz and, you know, his views, you said kind of influence Mead's work, right? And I think Mead writes a series of papers based on that kind of the Committee for National Morale. Can you just um, explain that a bit? Like what was so different about her position towards the whole, the notion of character, for an example? Yeah, good question. You know, my sense, and this is more of a sense than a document I can put my finger on, and but this comes from reading Mead's papers and biographies of her and 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 her work. Um, is that Margaret Mead and and Ruth Benedict, uh, who did some really incredible work work during the uh, Second World War. Ruth Benedict was uh, another of, of Boaz's students. Is that both of them uh, were really anxious uh, to get involved in the war? Um, you know. Mead and Bateson start doing this sort of film work, right? Where they're 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 looking at uh, uh, they're sort of there's this this anthropologist Laura Thompson who is in Germany in the 1930s and uh, you know was at some Hitler rallies and things like that and started writing about it uh, and there was this definite interest in sort of looking at uh, crowd response and looking at film work for national character and all, you know, and as, as sort of intelligence and, and these sorts of things. And my sense is that Mead um, sort of saw Boaz's position as a, as a roadblock. I mean, there's this 1941 meeting of the American Anthropological Association where uh, anthropologists are really anxious to join the war effort but there's this hesitancy going on, um, and they do right. They're they're doing it much they're doing it much more quietly. Even though Boaz is saying yes, there are things we can do. We need to fight fascism. Boaz was much more interested in sort of uh, national education at home, right? Boaz was worried about fascism in the United States uh, and racism in the United States, and you know, of course, much of uh, you know the the roots of the 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 Nuremberg Code coming from sort of Rockefeller funded uh, eugenics work and things like that. And this was, Boaz was was very much uh, involved in that, but his students, me being at the front, I think was just sort of chafing at the bit, just couldn't wait to get out there uh, and, and do this. And she was, I think she was ahead of Boaz and he wasn't saying things about maybe we shouldn't do that. Or maybe he was for it. It's an unknown, right? I, I'm, I'm reading something. I'm reading something into it, uh, in some yeah. sense, between the lines. But, um, you know, after, uh, you know, after Pearl Harbor, America's entry uh, into the war, all the anthropologists were rushing forward. Were rushing forward and doing this. And um, th there was certainly a part on a part of Margaret Mead that had some hesitancy, um, I think, early on in the war. But like everyone else, when, once you're involved in war, you're just involved in war. And, and I think that's that's why this sort of uh, Bateson's thoughts afterwards are in some sense, I think, natural, um, not, not particular to him, uh, that people come out of warfare and say, what the hell was that? You know, um, should I have done everything I did? All of these sorts of things. But but I do think there is a connection to, to Meade and Boaz and this hesitancy from from the previous war. So I think Bateson was cleared for active duty at the, in the OSS in 1943 or so. But can you just kind of tell us how, when was the OSS formed and 
uh, by the time I think Bateson joined, I think that's the context of your paper, right? Yeah. Um, so there was an organization called the OCI, Office of Coordinator of Information, um, which was a, a short-lived organization that, that um, I believe started right before America's entry in, into the war. I think it's probably 1941. And it was based at the Library of Congress, which is actually a pretty smart place to, to put a uh, in, intelligence organization. There was, there was a later, uh, a later uh, intelligence group that took over the whole second floor of the Jefferson building at the Library of Congress that was uh, only concerned with refugees that had all these anthropologists later in the war there. But the OCI, uh, William Donovan, who's uh, a Wall Street banker, lawyer, uh, sort of wild character, wild bill, um, is involved in the, the this Office of Coordinator of Information. And really what they're doing is they're collecting resumes from uh, what they hope is America's brightest, right? They're, and they're mining mm -hmm. sort of Ivy League. They're, they, you know, Yale has a heavy presence. And, you know, it, it's a lot of the same people that wind up in the CIA later. Um, and, and what they're doing, I think, is really pretty smart. They're, they know something bad is coming. They know America's eventually going to join in this effort. And they're just collecting all sorts of names and using social networks and things to sort of set up an intelligence agency that has two arms. And one arm is intelligence, right? Using open source intelligence, meaning newspapers or radio broadcasts, popular culture, any of these sorts of things to figure out what the hell's going on in these places where they can't really go necessarily. Uh, and then having a covert arm. So you have two two branches. One branch of the OSS is analysts, people sitting at desks um, reading either open source intelligence or intercepted intelligence or you know things that are passed on from people behind enemy lines. And then you have operatives, right? These are secret agent types that are uh, going out there um, doing wild things, you know, uh, going behind enemy lines, uh, running sources, you know, doing very dangerous sorts of things. And um, this, this is a very important sort of distinction that's there. And so Bateson winds up um, being recruited. Uh, he joins uh, and, you know, he goes to Sri Lanka um, at this tea plantation in Kandy, Kandy um, where, where he's with, uh, you know, a whole bunch of people, including Cora uh, Du Bois. Cora Du Bois is a uh, she's the first woman to ever get tenure at Harvard, right? She's a very, very bright um, anthropologist with a specialist uh, specialist in Indonesia. Um, is there uh, Julia Child? Is he's is working with him? Different last name, I think Williams or something like that. And Paul and Paul Child uh, is also there, who she eventually. Uh, eventually ma uh, marries. Um, and what they're doing is reading foreign intercepts, right? They're, they're, mostly, they're mostly reading uh, radio transmissions, things like that, but they're, uh, the, the, the fields they're interested in, uh, or I should say the theaters they're interested in, um, are primarily Indonesia and Burma, you know, that a lot of the traffic is going on there. And, you know, a lot of the sort of intelligence that that 
people are reading at that point are uh, intercepted cables. Um, you know, while Bateson is there, uh, the Japanese code machines uh, have been have been broken. It's possible to read the codes um, that are going on. So they're they're collecting things like about troop movements, about morale, and these sorts of things. And then later uh, in the war, he becomes involved in these what are called black propaganda operations, uh, where they're doing fake radio broadcasts. They have native speakers of Japanese. Uh, that are reading from scripts, pretending like they're Radio Tokyo. And the sorts of, uh, you know, we I, I don't know about the specific broadcast, right? We don't have scripts from that, but I know a lot about, you know, how these techniques work. And they usually work where, um, you know, you would have this native speaker, you would play music, you would do all these sorts of things. You'd make it crackly enough so it really, you might think it really was this shortwave coming, coming from there. And like maybe 80 or 90% of what you would say would be true, right? You would, you would, you would have these true things, but the 10 or 15 or 20% you put in there uh, was designed to break morale. So you would have stories in there about, you know, jellied fire bombings and things that were, you know, while, while these were happening later in the war and such, but they would be greatly exaggerated in terms of the toll, or, or you would have stories in there about how quickly how, you know, in what a short time the, the entire food supply for Japan would, um, you know, would, would run out and things like that. Um, and, you know, uh, Bateson, uh, you know, later writes that, uh, that this was work that he was good at. Uh, and you get some sense that during the war, um, there was, I don't know. He, he wasn't hating it. Right. I mean, of course, he hated being in war and things like that. But I, I guess I want to say there's some sort of satisfaction in terms of they're doing these things. And then later there's it shows up in his OSS records, uh, which I got released from a, a, a CIA Freedom of Information Act. Right. The CIA got got most of or all of uh, they tried to get all of the OSS records once the CIA starts up a couple of years after the war. Um they got all the records. And so in there, there was this uh, commendation for him for going on some sort of dangerous secret mission to go and rescue uh, some, some people who'd been, uh, who'd been captured, who'd been captured in Burma. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And then, I mean, in that report, then you also go on to talk about certain suggestions that Bateson had made, right? And this is in a very broad sense. You could say that it, it relates to a certain kind of even design decision, what you could say at the policy level. So um, how would you comment on that? Like those- the you, kind of you broke up at the very first part of that. Would you mind repeating it? Yeah, no. So, I mean, in the in the paper, then you go on to talk about certain recommendations that, you know, Bateson makes actively. Uh, and because in a very broad sense, these recommendations relate to something like, you know, policy or, um, you, you know, that kind of relevant to certain design decisions, if you will, and how the colonials would go about, you know, uh, working within the colony. And so you talk about that in detail. So um, can you just kind of recap that a bit, sure. and, you know? Sure. Um, part of what he's he's thinking about uh, being in, in Sri Lanka is what happens with India after the war. Right. And, and they're they're reading reports um, at the station at the outpost where where he is. Um, and 
he he makes a couple of recommendations, which are, I don't know, to, to read them today are sort of bizarre, right? Yeah. In terms of, I don't know how else, how else to put it. Uh, but he's thinking, uh, to put it in context, I think, uh, I think he is thinking like a warrior during wartime in terms of trying to keep design stability rather than thinking about um, what's best for people, perhaps, right? This is my this is my take on it. And so his his position that he takes in writing this is that the United States should back the status quo, meaning India remains a colony after the war. Um, and he comes up with suggestions on how to do this, um, one of which is this sort of bizarre analogy where he says he has this parent-child <laughs> this parent-child sort of uh, analysis that he does where the, you know, the, the, I suppose the British are the parent colonialists and the uh, Indians are the, uh, are the children or something. And he says, yeah, you know, if we did this more... Uh, if, if the British would become more like what he believes American parents are like, um, being more expressive and less reserved and things like this, uh, then it could maintain this system that's there. And again, that to me is the cringe part, is the, yeah. the idea that what needs to be maintained here is this sort of relationship. But again, uh, if, if, you know, there, there are two ways to do history. One is presentism, where you take all your ideas from the present and go back, and the other is historicism, where you say, well, I want to understand characters in their own time. I want to do both, right? So, uh, but to but to to do it as a historicist, it's like, I think we can understand that he's in this war, and he thinks, you know, stability is good, and stability is the status quo, and this sort of thing. Then the second, uh, the second main part he has in there, I find the most interesting, um, and, and uh, worthy of consideration perhaps. Um, and he riffs on uh, the ways that he writes about the Soviets. Um, the Soviets are able to do what I think of as counterinsurgency, right? Counterinsurgency is keep an uprising from happening, keep things in place and so on. And it's, it's basically culture hacking, where he says, when there are groups that the Soviets are, are occupying, um, they, if, you know, he is, I, I assume he is imagining part of this, but uh, if they're smart, what they do is they understand the local culture and they adapt it uh, rather than just coming in and brutally saying, this is the way it's going to be, is that you need to understand the culture uh, which you are going to occupy and, and maintain. And so these are, these are really uh, two of the recommend, big recommendations that he makes in this, this fascinating um, analytical paper. John, John, I'm seeing a, a hand. Yes, yes, he has a question. John, go ahead. Yeah, that is great. It's great to home in on this material. As I, I mentioned before, we properly started around this time. There's the MoMA exhibition and this curious text uh, that comes with it around the you know, questions of reoccupation. And I, th I think this, this separating out of, of, of the two historical tasks, I think, is very useful. And, and, and so, yes, there, there's a, a present-day situated one, but also, as you say, the historicizing one. And I think you've talked about the, the if you like, you know, the, the understandable positions of being in, in a wartime scenario, um, which, thankfully, I've never directly had to do. Um, but also, I think it's interesting to try to think... to. I feel I need to try to historicize 
how these actions fit within the, the way I understand to be his emerging body of concepts and work. And, and I think there's some interesting historicizing to do there as well, which is um, that, that, that it seems like damage limitation work in some ways, but and, and coming from a kind of sort of systems anthropology position where, I mean, I think on the one hand that there's the stuff you mentioned about the, the parent child thing is that is, I think it's, it's it's easy for us to read that today in a patronizing way, and it, and it certainly, you know, almost certainly does have some aspect of that. But but there, but there's a kind of bigger structural relationship which I think he's trying to highlight that just comes in any conflict where you're going to have one side that's going to be stronger in some way or the other, and what are just the structural ways in which that can play out, and and either you you potentially amplify it or moderate it. And in both cases, there's going to be some kind of violence and damage. And, and so, you know, I mean, I think we can still be quite critical of it, but, it, but, but a lot of the work seems, seems to be about limiting cultural damage. And like the MoMA work seemed to be, you know, if, if, if you imagine, you know, what kind of intervention might limit the amount of damage that the US military arriving in these, in these places will do, from that kind of you know systemic anthropology position, it makes a lot of sense to 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 explore the kind of moves that he made. So so it's, it seems like there's there's a few levels of history. I mean, I'm not really disagreeing with anything you've said, but there, there's almost a conceptual historicizing which makes a certain amount of sense within this emerging body of of thought as well. Um, that's certainly no, I, like, I like that. I'm, I'm less familiar with the specific OSS stuff, but but the MoMA one is, is something I've often thought, yeah, how to think about this curious statement around reoccupation. So, but but if you think of like cybernetics and stability, there's a thread that goes through there, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that's significant, especially from a historicist, right? If we're presentist historicist, from a historicist point of view. There were anthropologists who came out of the war um, fighting for third world revolution, right? There was this guy, Jack Harris, um, who, who was amazing. He, uh, he came out of the war and uh, was working for the United Nations and wound up, uh, he was looking at uh, Africa, uh, East and Southern Africa, what should be done, right? Post-colonial sort of things. Um, and he was raging for, well, what we have to do is, you know, cut everybody off from the empire. We need to have a fund. We need this. And he was doing it so much he got fired, right? They, they publicly fired him and he got a, a large settlement, um, like 10 years worth of salary that he took and left the country and uh, went to Costa Rica and started a taxi company and lived a good life, right? There were... And, and so from a historicist point of view, it's like, were there other people with different ideas is, is useful information. There were some people who came out of it doing this thing. But I, I think it is important that Bateson yeah, yeah. thought stability um, was a given or, or a, a natural state or I don't know. I don't know how to put it. Yeah. Well, can, I, can I can I say I don't want to maybe over focus on this. Can I can I. Is that okay to reply again? I'm looking, sorry, I'm looking. Yeah, go ahead, Don. I mean, and then I think Philip um, has also, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll be super brief, Philip. Is that okay? And then I'll, or did you, yeah? Um, 
I think the stability question is is a interesting one, but I'm thinking now various things that we've seen of of where Bateson has been like late many decades later talking about environmental questions, and in various times makes the point that acting upon sites damaged sites is and doing what appears to be the the obvious right thing to do is very often going to reinforce a bad situation, and. And so it's like, you know, if, if so in, in the colonial context, if you like, we've got these cultures that had been uncontacted. There's then this whole bunch of contact and this readjustment that happens. And I think that there's from, from the same sort of cybernetic anthropology understanding, there's then a concern that, yeah, first of all, you fractionate down by bringing the two together. If you then remove one, you'll end up just fractionating more and doing even more damage that kind of... There's a reoccur there's a recurring concept in basic stuff that, that and we see in other kinds of violence and damage going on where he seems to be sort of like, you know, acting in the obvious place is not necessarily the right thing to do. Oh, Philip, apologies for taking too much. Uh, no, just to to add a couple things to this uh, dialogue, um, uh, things he said later, uh, he. Um, used to joke about, for example, about the British Empire many years later, and he would talk about a Diego Rivera um, painting and say uh, with the British colonialists with their pith helmets and said that the British colonialists also always had the pith helmet focus, you know, right on the top of their eyes and they could never see a thing. Because in fact, they were completely impervious yep. to any of the advice that he um, provided. And he was looking at it from their perspective. He was taking it as someone, yeah, yeah, someone who adv would advise the British Empire as to how it would, what would need to do from a systems perspective in order to perpetuate itself. But he was also increasingly aware of the fact that it would never do that. And it would never do that because of the way it was constituted, which uh, fits in but I don't have time to explain here all the intricacies of how that fits in with the whole family, you know, metaphors that he's using, but it does, it fits in very exactly with those. The other thing he said, and this fits in with his um, analysis of, for example, Nazi films during the um, earlier part of the war, is that he said that he would go and to the, uh, the Indian cinema, the, the Sri Lankan cinema, whatever, the South Asian cinema, but they were showing films from India and he would go in and watch them. And he said, this is how you know what's going on. This is how you know how people are feeling. Uh, look, they don't really like you, you know, <laughs> the, uh, as uh, colonial occupiers. And he said that the British just had this attitude of, oh, you know, you go do that. Like it was sort of a below his status or below his, um, you know, it's not something that a self-respecting uh, Britisher would do is to lower themselves to see what the Indian films were saying. Say even in the interests of, um, you know, even the interests of stability, you should be looking at this and you should figure out what's going on with the people themselves. And they were totally impervious to that. So in a way, his. Uh, at what you think of because it's couched as if it's advocacy, but if you look at it another way, it's also showing the um, 
the breaking points, the way the uh, sort of breaking points of the chain of uh, what was going on in colonialism, yeah. and why it would not succeed in the end. And and that's those are really great points. The there's this continuity um, of of what Philip just described of Bateson going to the you know to the local cinema and watching what's going on and these sorts of things with this culture at a distance project that Meade was very much a part of, Ruth Benedict and Meade before the war, but really during World War II. And, and you know, what Ruth Benedict does um, uh, during the war is she's hired by the Office of War Information, uh, Office of War Information by this guy, George Taylor, um, who later, you know, he hired Clyde Cluckholm and Florence Cluckholm and Benedict um, but he wouldn't hire Meade, and I, I interviewed, I interviewed him. I did a like eight-hour interview at one point. It was just this entire long day um, with you know talking about it, and he thought she was too psychological um, in her orientation. That that she would get too focused on, you know, were the children swaddled or things like this, sort of almost a Freudian, uh, Freudian sort of thing. Uh, but he hires Ruth Benedict, and what Benedict does is she studies um, contemporary Japanese news reports, uh, classic novels, kabuki theater, um, everything she can get her hands on. She has this whole team doing it and writes these whole series of, of reports that I've read the classified versions that were written for the Office of War Information. And then after the war, um, Parts are taken out, but it's it's essentially a repackaging of the things becomes this book, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, which is this very important uh, book that helped influence MacArthur in the occupation and, you know, all of these things. And uh, in many ways, it's it's very similar to the sorts of things that are going on in this Bateson document, right? The sorts of looking for deep meaning within culture found in popular culture um, as expressions of these things. I like, I like what Philip said about, uh, you know, uh, that the superiors might be saying, why are you wasting your time doing, doing this sort of thing? But it's really through that, that um, anthropologists with wide variety of backgrounds were taking this sort of stuff uh, and doing textual analysis of culture um, in a weaponized sort of context, which is this whole different sort of thing. I mean, just this is for like a, a clarification of myself, because I think you mentioned, David, and I think also it came up in the discussion about cybernetics and stability, right? So if we look at this moment, Bateson has not yet encountered cybernetics uh, in, in because the Macy conferences happened in 46, right? So, I mean, there's a bunch of things that he writes later in reflection with that vocabulary. But in the 40s, like when, when this was happening, so cybernetic vocabulary is still not, uh, you know, in place. And this is where I think we had a little bit of a discussion on this and the kind of effect of perhaps British structuralist kind of ideas and whether that was where this notion of stability was coming from. You know, it was almost like a precursor of some of the cybernetic ideas of stability in a way. So um, what would you want to add to that, like about the kind of British structure, this kind of component? Um, that might, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's certainly my suspicion. I think Philip knows more about mm -hmm. where it came from and, you know, all of those sorts of things. But I've always just suspected um, and not just British 
structural functionalism, right? Um, Radcliffe Brown had come to the United States and uh, people were reading him and all, you know, all of, all of this uh, sort of thing. But um, yeah, I have just always assumed that some notion of balance and structure um, it, and it doesn't have to be British functionalism that's there. There, there. there are waves of that that show up in American anthropology at that point, too, where people are looking at um, uh, resistance to culture change that are happening in uh, with American Indian tribes that are going on. I see. Philip may have an answer to this. Yes, please, Philip. Yeah, well, uh, just to say that he studied directly under uh, Radcliffe Brown and uh, was knew, and I think Malinowski as well, or else knew of, uh, but he was very skeptical of those. But to amplify what John is saying in the chat, uh, his ideas of schismogenesis were very much formed in that period. And in fact, there's a specific mention in Novin that uh, uh, some of schismogenesis came from his discussing with, um, you know, with someone in his circle, uh, the situation in Europe as it was developing in the 1930s. So these were definitely things uh, he had in mind. I would say that he was always much more dynamic than the um, structural functionalist school, that he was always, first of all, interested in process where they were interested in structure. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, it's not fair to uh, bracket him, but in the sense of the general milieu of, you know, what, who are you talking to and what are you advising and so on. Yeah, that's probably fair in a way. Stephen? There was also, uh, yeah, um, in 1942, the, the, uh, the cybernetics conferences so labeled were after the war, but in 1942, Norbert Wiener hosted a meeting in New York that both Gregory and Margaret were at where the basic concepts of feedback were mm -hmm. introduced and Gregory was, you know, absolutely profoundly excited by this and, uh, you know, just met completely, you know, the, the, the writing he had done in Navin, which was about feedback, was about negative feedback, but didn't have that word. And then, you know, those, those two things met. So that was already on his mind during World War II when he was doing that intelligence work. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for that clarification. Um, Tim has added to the chat, the cerebral inhibition meeting. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Was that the name of it? Okay. And this was in 1942. Okay. Um, so I guess, I mean, we are moving towards the end of, you know, the convers like um, the conversation between uh, David and I, but I think it's already been like, you know, a group conversation, but just is to open up to the other people also in our group, um, but also our guests. If you have any questions, um, just kind of, you know, go ahead and directly pose your questions. Ben? I can do one. Yeah. Um, so uh, thanks everyone so far. Um, I guess it's um, a question maybe jumping forward to the present moment. And um, David, in your article, you um, that Domini referenced, um, there's a sort of, you know, relationship between this historical moment and, you know, contemporary questions of applied 
anthropology and um you know one version of applied anthropology is how it's leveraged in design um particularly in kind of human-centered design in you know around kind of products and um users and their desires and i just wonder you know is this uh um I haven't really thought about it from the anthropology side before and how anthropologists feel about the use of their work in design. So I just wonder if that's uh, something you might see parallels with. If, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll jump from, uh, from design with a small d to, to design with a giant d it, it spelled manipulation, right? As, as, as part of it, right? This is mm -hmm. part of how do anthropologists feel about uh, you know, using their work uh, to design systems, to design uh, things that manipulate people, that, that get desired outcomes uh, is probably a nicer word than manipulation or something like that. And we're all over the place is, is the answer. Um, there, are, there are some anthropologists who think that theory is the only thing we should do. There are some of us who think we should try and save the world. Um, there are some of us who uh, think that if someone wants to hire you, you should do what they want, right? In, in terms of things, so there's this, there's this, there's this. The entire range is out there, uh, and there's not one anthropology, right? There's this, there's all of these different things, um, and to me, that that's what drew me into studying this World War II moment. Is there were no ethics codes um, for any of the social sciences before the Second World War, right? It, they, they all come out of Nuremberg. Uh, the first medical codes, right? Modern medical codes. I mean, we have, you know, uh, you know, Greek codes of do no harm and things like that. But the modern medical codes um, come out of the Nuremberg Code, looking, looking at it. Yet, the, the thing I find really interesting is uh, in American anthropology, the first ethics code is written by applied anthropologists, not the, there, there are two, you know, in the 1940s, there are two kind of big American anthropological associations. One is the American Anthropological Association, which is the big one that's academic. It's purely academic. The other is Society for Applied Anthropology. And it's the applied anthropologists that write the first code. And they write it because of all the bad stuff that happened in the war. Um, that that was attractive right it was it you it's not like somebody twisted their arm it's like if you're fighting people you grab for whatever tools you have and then maybe afterwards you say what the hell was that and and try and rethink it in those sorts of things i i think i i've, I've got a, a a chapter in something i wrote that's called you know war is a force that gives anthropology ethics right playing on this uh, you know book book title mm -hmm. that's out there and I think it's, it, you know, in way of looking at design and all these sorts of things, I think it's because it's so attractive to do anything and everything, uh, especially in a fight where you're, I mean, you know, if you're fighting fascists, that's a whole different deal in terms of, in terms of what's allowed and, and, and so on, especially from an anthropological perspective of beliefs about the equality of humankind and, you know, all of these sorts of things that are, that are there and, and are, are on the line. So I know I'm doing a ramble in terms of, in terms of answering this, but it's a, to me, it's a, it's a big question, you know, what, 
how do we approach design? Uh, and it's important that it was the applied anthropologist, not the egghead, you know, university bound theoretical people that came up with it. They didn't really do it until 1971. And it was the Vietnam War that got them to do it uh, in terms of what was happening with anthropology being used for these sorts of things. So I think anthropologists have a ton to offer, but it's always an ethical question, right? Is your job as an anthropologist, there was this early um, applied anthropologist named Saul Tax, who was at University of Chicago, who had this thing he called action anthropology. And he said the orientation had to be that you went and you worked with a group, right, a local population, and you understood them so you could make the people who want to do the change understand them. And represent, you know, help amplify their voice. You can't speak for them, but you could help amplify their voice. You might help organize them. You might help them to uh, this change, this design that's coming. You might amplify them upwards or, or help them resist if, if that's what needs to happen, which is really different from sort of classical design applied anthropology, which is often co-option, right? That you go and you, how are we going to make these people do this stuff they don't want to do? So the whole range is there. Um, and, and this is how I, I felt. I didn't mean to do write all these books I wrote. I mean, it, it, at the core of it was really these big ethical and moral questions about using culture to mess with people. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, the CIA has been very interested in that in a long time. Yeah. And I think also some of your recent work, right, talks about how this project is not only a kind of a historical thing, but it's kind of present kind of relevance. Yeah. And uh, but, but before that, we can just go to John has a question, and I think also Stephen has something. So... Yeah, well, a couple of a couple of points briefly, and then I'll, I'll end with a, a question. Thanks for the sole tax rate. You've actually just clarified why Bateson opened the '69 event where he was looking at a theory of action. Actually, with a sole tax anecdote, um, so, and I hadn't made that connection of, of action anthropology. Thank you for that. Regarding design, um, it's often interesting to look at the different histories of architecture and design. And so I mean, design becomes self-conscious very much in industrial capitalism, but architecture is, is, is earlier, is, it becomes self-conscious as it were in the earlier stages of, of you know, Italian city-states and so on. But in almost every architectural treatise that you can find, however historical, the, the, on the one hand, they're kind of having to do their own anthropological research. The division of labor hasn't yet been as separated as it was in the 20th century, as it, you know, with anthropologists and designers, but but the, the certain body of knowledge was, was kind of doing both. And in almost every case, would would be producing war machines and drawings for war machines of various kinds, as well as drawings of buildings, you know, even if you go back to like classical remnants of text in Vitruvius and so on, you know, it's it's half trebuchets, half buildings and, and and the like so so this 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 actually embedded action knowledge is, is always quite interesting i had a, a a super quick question that maybe to point out which was about some other people who were in the oss and whether your work had looked at those people like kind of yeah, adorno and, and horkheimer and so on and just whether you came across any connections within the oss of, i mean just adorno and Basin would be fascinating if that ever happened if there's any evidence of that conversation ever happening or or um, yeah, forgive me. I haven't read. I haven't actually read read everything you've set out. So, so maybe just point me at. 
I mean, my work doesn't really dig into them, but I've read a lot of the history of the OSS and, you know, who, who was uh, coming. Herbert Marcuse, right, was a, a very, very significant person. Uh, there were lots of Marxists uh, that were in the American State Department uh, in the OSS, um, and many of them, uh, I'm not speaking of Adorno per se, you know, uh, but many of them had good relationships with Soviets um, because they were party members. And this helped, and of course the Soviets were allies, and this helped during the war effort, and when the 50s came and McCarthyism came, they were they were screwed in all sorts of ways. So uh, the, you know, the, the OSS was definitely left wing. Um, you know, we had a left wing presidency and, and so on. It was definitely left wing American uh, with lots of socialists and communists. And of course we had lots of refugees. Uh, there, was a, there was a pipeline to, to Yale University and there were pipelines into the new school for social research where of course, you know, uh, a lot of the Frankfurt School landed and and others. So yeah, there's a fascinating history there in terms of uh, those who joined up to fight fascism. No, thank you. That, that's great. Thank you. And Stephen. Yeah, I mean, I I was going to talk about Saul Tax for a second, but also uh, the last thing that David said, you know, about when you start flipping from the World War II situation to the McCarthyism situation, and um, you know, uh, 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 suddenly it became the task of American politicians to root out all the communists and socialists from the the ranks of, you know, Hollywood academia and the um, intelligence services. So it was sort of this insane thing, which I think also had an effect on Gregory in some way. But, you know, you mentioned the Sol Tax is a name that Gregory constantly mentioned in the context of his of the of this story which was really emblematic to Gregory's um uh, negative feelings about action and design where Soltax had gone into this uh, uh Native American group that had the peyote ceremony and uh this was going to be uh, outlawed by the US government and um, Soltax felt that the only way to sort of save the the ritual integrity uh, of this um, ceremony was to uh, make a film documented and prove that it was a genuine, uh, deeply held religious ritual and not a bunch of people fooling around with drugs. And um, uh, Gregory would many times retell the story about how the film crew arrived, everything was set to go, and then the tribal council had their meeting, and each member stood up one after another and said, um, I understand that this may be the only way to save our way of life, but I would like to be excused. And then the next person, I would like to be excused, and I would like to be excused, and the film didn't happen because people felt that the that the integrity meaning also the secrecy and the uh holding of it within the context of people who actually knew what it was to them was more important than allowing it to survive yeah great 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 example yeah 
Thank you, Stephen. And I think Tim has added something to the chat, a quotation, <laughs> very broadly on design. Tim, would you want to, do you have a question or would you want to add something? No, I just, um, I've always found this particular letter that he wrote to um, Mary Catherine that then showed up later in a book as a, as a chapter entry kind of cheeky, like the entire the entire letter and the chapter is a, is a little tongue in cheek cheeky. And I've been kind of fascinated with it, particularly because it mentions design and it's probably not designed the way that we think about it, but um, nonetheless, there's some, <clears throat> I don't know, some statements he makes in this, in this letter to uh, Mary Catherine that I find kind of interesting still. Yes, thanks so much. Um... So do we have any more questions from the audience? Really? Well, I'm curious, um, David, because you know we talked about this dilemma that Bateson was in, right? And this was in a historical moment, but I think most of your stuff, then you just kind of trace this kind of anthropological intelligence in different contexts after that. So, I mean, we are living in a moment we're talking about so much about decolonization, right? Um, respects to different cosmologies, et cetera. But at the same time, you know, the notion of intelligence gets like co-opted, uh, used in, in particular ways to kind of take away the futures of, you know, so many people. So could you just kind of comment on that? And from, from the trajectory of work that you've been doing after that, you know, so it's not like the, the issue has kind of disappeared, right? Some of these kind of ethical issues, yeah. Right. No, there are, uh, you know, increased increased efforts that I think have a shared trajectory to the past of doing the sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, culture hacking that, mm -hmm. that Bateson was interested in, uh, whether it's for uh, counterinsurgency, which, uh, you know, uh, here in the United States, the in the, the war on terror, there was this 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 program that I was a very vocal an active critic of called the human terrain systems uh, that came that embedded anthropologists with troops in downrange in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq uh, to to try and inform troop movements with the the idea of like oh if we had someone there who understood the culture we would you know the occupation would go better you know these mm -hmm. these sorts of it would be less lethal was the the selling point that was there. Uh, and, you know, it, it eventually imploded after a few years, but it remains, to my knowledge, the, the most expensive anthropologically so-called, I don't see it as anthropological, but, you know, so-called anthropologically funded project at three quarters of a billion dollars mm. went into this, um, you know, with the idea of taking these sorts of ideas of if we could understand culture, we would have design, we could do manipulation and all of these sorts of things. And it remains the dream. Um, and, and some of this dream was wild. They had these crazy uh, things they called phrasolators, which looked like some like 1978 Doctor Who prop, right? It was this giant, looked like a huge cell phone that was supposedly uh, translate on the spot. And of course they didn't work. Uh, and they had these reach back systems, which you in real time, supposedly you could talk to people in the United States who would tell you what you're doing and, you know, stop these, you know, stop these sorts of things. And it was, it was, it was very much in the spirit or tone of uh, that Bates and OSS 
uh, <laughs> memo of, of, you know, how do we keep this system going? How do we, you know, what are, what are things that we can do here? And so uh, while the technology didn't work, they really couldn't get many anthropologists to do it. They had to draw other people uh, to come in. The dream is there, right? This dream of control, this dream of using knowledge of culture to do these things. Um, it, it remains here. And when you add AI um, and yeah. what comes next with that, you can see it just rapidly spinning into all sorts of Has your research questions. So the human, the human Terrain Project, when was that mobilized? So kind of in the 19... 19- uh, I, I think 2007 is when it first popped up and it was really kind of 2008. Somebody leaked documents to me like right away when it started. So right. the roots were 06, 07. And it was a big, I mean, it was a big deal. They, they, it was, it was sort of the public face for this war that everybody knew was going to fail after a couple decades. But this was the smart war is what we were being told was, was doing this. Yeah. Um, so I guess we're coming towards the end of our time. Do, does anyone else have a question or? Not really. Okay. Um, Go ahead. David. Yeah, I'd really like to ask a you know a, a, a question not only of David but of Philip and um, the rest of you. I mean the the fascinating thing you know here's here's Gregory who was uh, um, not just in terms of anthropology but in terms of so many other issues. You know we're 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 now seeing uh, all kinds of ideas about engineered ecological quote solutions you know he would have not been really thrilled about the word solution um he was as far as i understand it um this experience in the oss kind of really turned him against the idea of applied anything that it became sort of toxic to him um he was also um I think he was very influenced by this, um, or, or, or perhaps felt confirmed in this view by the interaction that he had with Oppenheimer. Um, I believe that was 1947, uh, where Oppenheimer said that uh, we and the Russians are headed uh, in direction of hell with a positive rate of acceleration and a positive rate of change of acceleration. And the only way to save ourselves is to let it, whatever let it means, you know, but the idea of making a a helpful intervention was uh, more likely to make the problem even worse. And of course, we see that time and time and again. Um, In the realm of therapy, Gregory was, uh, there were these two guys who were neighbors in um, ben Lomond, uh, Bandler and Grindler, Grinder, who started uh, neurolinguistic programming, and uh, they were very, um, they drew a lot from Gregory's work, and Gregory wrote a wonderful blurb for their book, and he almost immediately regretted it uh, because of he saw the way that they were trying to fix people, engineer people, um, you know, so through, really throughout the last half of his life, he was so uh, disgusted by the idea of applied anything. 
And yet at the same time, you know, any of us is living in the midst of these 15 different intersecting crises, you know, gee, we want to do something. And um, I'm really interested what you all have to say about this and and where this came from. Did they, Do you feel that this came from the OSS experience? Uh, did it come from other experiences that he had or other experiences that people he knew had? It's a very interesting question. John. Yeah, I'd be happy to build on that. Uh, so, so I think yes is the I mean from what I understand, yes is the answer in that that would clearly had some traumatic thing. But I would I would also complicate the story a little bit because it seems to me that there was a period where he really did withdraw, but that stops to some extent. And 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 he become he, he's clearly still extremely cautious of any action. I mean, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, and no doubt I can, can tell from first-hand all kinds of anecdotes around that. But um, but doesn't he actually slightly, you know, I mean, Mary Catherine in, in the Our Own Metaphor talks about, you know, when he decides to care again in, in that, there's a wonderful, you know, he had yeah had 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 written everything off as irredeemably steeped in folly or something, but but you know, she, she she claimed that he was starting to care again from, and you can we kind of sort of see it in the dialectics of liberation onwards seems to me, the kind of hinge point, and then in the nineteen seventies one of the things that we've been trying to get our heads around in the archive recently is is what's actually emerging is a series of engagements with, for example, urban planners. Now. Whilst you're absolutely right, I mean, he's kind of, he's going there and he's actually largely saying, oh, hang on, we need to think about how we might do anything. He's nonetheless, he, he's not rejecting, it's, it's not a total rejection. It's more about trying to find a, a larger space within which we might place boundaries upon action and where we might say, no, that would be, you know, a breach of the sacred or whatever, however, to think about, you know, where we should act and where we shouldn't act and, and so on. So... So, uh, so I think that the, the yeah the immediate applied work yeah he was definitely tra it definitely appears to have been traumatized, withdrew completely, but then seems to return as asking questions at a slightly higher level of how might we act you know. Well, yeah. Philip, I think you. Well. Um... I have a few uh, articles out about his uh, ambivalence toward the concept of power and how he um, and how he on the one hand was thinking, well, what does it mean and how does it work uh, even if he didn't want to call it that for various uh, reasons connected to his idea of physical metaphors and so on. But uh, all of these uh, very much uh, fit in with this. I have a more specific question for David Price and that's about a specific an anecdote that he told about his, uh, his work in the OSS. And he said that he, when he was operating a radio station that he would get uh, these um, these, um, pardon me, uh, Japanese um, transmissions, and then he would exaggerate them to the point where the local people would no longer believe them. 
do you know any specifics about what I'm talking about or am I getting uh, the audience wrong here? No, that's a, that's a, a, a tried and true propaganda technique. There's this guy, uh, what is his name? Lyndon. I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting his name. He wrote, he wrote a, a, he's a golden age of science fiction writer who wrote under the name Cord Wainer Smith and his name, ah. uh, I can't remember his name, Lyndon, Lyndon something. Uh, he wrote this classic text during the war about basic techniques. And uh, one of them was exactly this, that, that you accelerate the exaggerations to the point where it's like, I'm not even, I'm not going to listen to this source at all. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, that was a, that would, that would be a classic te technique just to, to discredit because it may be that they give an order at some point you should listen to, but you've given up on them as a, as a source of anything reliable. That's interesting. Yeah. And he would discuss that as an example of uh, schismogenesis of, or yeah. positive feedback uh, as a teaching example. So, um, but as with some of his anecdotes, it's sometimes difficult to trace exactly the when and the where and the how. But that's interesting that that's typical. Okay, thanks. So, thank you so much, everyone. And um, thanks a lot, David, for joining us. I guess, you know, we're come to the end of the time limit. So um, I guess we will, oh, we also have a comment from the audience. David, I think Rob Hancock, right? Um, anyway, so I guess we will continue this series of conversations. And I think um, next we, we have in line a discussion, um, we have planned a discussion with Anthony Cheney, uh, which would also be happening, I think, towards the end of the month. And then, of course, at the RCA, we have also planned discussions with Philip Gudemi, also Tim and Fred Steer. So we have a series of different conversations coming up. And whoever is interested, you can also join us um, for these other conversations. And so thank you so much, David. That was fascinating. And uh, we wish you luck with all the, you know, the your ongoing research. And I will get in touch with you again via mail. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. I enjoyed Thank you very much. much. You're a knowledgeable group. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Bye for now. Thank you. Nice work, Dominique. <laughs> Hi, Ben. Let's talk. Yeah.